Well, if you would turn to 1 John 5, and just as a scripture reading, we'll read from verse 13 to the end, but we're looking at the last two verses, particularly tonight, as we wrap this particular letter up. So beginning at 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So we have this passage. As we noted last time, the uh, verse 13 is uh, announcing a conclusion, perhaps is the conclusion to the letter, and the rest is sort of a follow-up. But that John has written these things that, that you may know that you have eternal life. And there are three things that are true of those who know they have eternal life. There's confidence in prayer, which we spent our time on last time. There's an understanding or a knowledge of the true God. And then the third thing is we keep ourselves from idols. So the first thing, um, so we're looking at these second two. We did the confidence in prayer last time. So verse 20 And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. So the Son of God has come, and uh, it's again an affirmation that would have contradicted the uh, denials of the Gnostics. Again, that was a group, maybe not exclusively, but a group that that he significantly uh, was confronting with this particular letter. The Gnostics who denied the um, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in human flesh. And they also claimed to have a special knowledge that you needed to get from them and them alone. So here we, John has used the word know quite a bit, even in just the passage we read tonight. He's repeated a number of times this, you know this, you know this, you know you have what you've asked in prayer because you know God hears us. There's a lot of the restatement of knowledge, the basic word for know is the word, uh, Greek word from which we get Gnostic, uh, Gnosticism. And um, it's that 
word that's used for that particular heresy. In this particular verse, there are uh, three uses of the word no. Two of them are from the same Greek word, that word we get from Gnosticism. They're in a different form, but they're both from that word. And it's communicating the idea of possessing information, understanding, knowing a truth. Understanding is going to come in a minute. Possessing information, you're acquainted with something uh, that um, you clearly know. Uh, so, for example, in Romans chapter 1, when he's talking about the, the uh, ungodly, he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. <clears throat> so anybody that affirms to you that there are people out there who don't know God, that's not, that's not true. Every single human being that ever, has ever lived, ever will live, <clears throat> knows, and not just that there is a higher being, but they know the true God. The problem is they don't like him, and so they suppress that truth in their unrighteousness. <clears throat> and so in this verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come. So there's an affirmation that we have clear and accurate knowledge, information, that the Son of God has come. He's come in human flesh. And then this, a different word for know is translated here, understanding. He has come and has given us understanding. And so we, we realize there's a distinction there that's significant. And that is we can know information. Uh, and that's important. And that's where it begins. But then there's a sense in which we can apply that knowledge and have a sense of understanding or an appreciation of the meaning of that knowledge. <clears throat> and here in this verse, what John is saying, for those who know they have eternal life, uh, they know that Christ, Jesus has come into the world and they know why he's come into the world. And that is that we may know him who is true. Now, this verse is going to argue both for Jesus being true, but I think probably here in this middle phrase, it's Jesus came to reveal to us uh, the person of God, God in his unity, God in his triune unity, uh, that Jesus Christ came into the world to reveal to us God and help us to understand and know him, not only know the information about him, but understand uh, that he is true. He's the true God. We ought not to, the, the next verse when it's talking about idols, it's going to be contrasting knowing the true God with not having idols. <clears throat> and Jesus Christ coming into the world was to do that. Uh, if we go back to John chapter 1, uh, it, um, John brought this up in his, in his gospel And it's connected to him. It's connected to the revelation of God. In John chapter 1, at verse 14, 
It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only, only, uh, only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's his revelation. He's the Word, but the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we're getting the revelation of Jesus Christ that's coming in the flesh and revealing God. And then in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So it's Jesus coming, uh, the purpose of his coming was to help us to understand and know uh, the God, God that is true. And then it, then I think, coming back to 1 John five twenty, then I think he's moving in a, a different direction or an amplified direction here. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. So he's bringing together God in general and specifically the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And we are in him, in Christ. We are united to Christ and uh, in him who is true. And Jesus Christ is true as well. Uh, We are in him who is true. Uh, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. <clears throat> it reminds us of Jesus' statement to the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So we understand the Son of God has come into the world. We understand that he has revealed to us God so we might know the true God. We are united to Christ. We're in union with him uh, and who also is true. So we have this connection with the Lord revealed to us through the Lord Jesus Christ that we might have confidence and know uh, God and know, be united to his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Calvin writes, by true God, John does not mean one who tells the truth, but him who is really God. Uh, Jesus in his high priestly prayer prayed, now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is knowing God and knowing Christ. And the work of the spirit enlightens our minds to help us to understand and appreciate that. And so the conclusion of the verse is, um, and he is the true God and eternal life. It's interesting that it's not that he just brings us eternal life or gives us eternal life, but it shows the Christ-centered nature of the gospel. Christ is the focus. Uh, He is the true God and he is our eternal life. It's all wrapped up in him and in his person. Uh, Everything we are, everything we have uh, is subsumed in him. Christ needs to be the center of our life. He is our life. He is our eternal life. And that needs to be the bedrock of who we are as those who know that they have eternal life. So we have in verse 20, the description of our understanding of the true God, 
uh, through Jesus Christ <clears throat> and uh, very significantly and again would have been a counteraction to the the falsehood of the, the Gnostics that they had that knowledge. No, you as a believer have that knowledge and you know Christ and you know God. Then he gives this last little exhortation, admonition. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. <clears throat> and as some ask, why in the world is this here? Uh, it seems to just drop in the middle of what he's talking about. And in some sense, you wonder what, what prompted him to say this. Uh, it comes without any explanation. But on the other hand, from a, a couple different points of view, or from a historical point of view, it fits. Because one of the challenges that the believers then and now have is the, the challenge to remain true to the true God and not be drawn away by falsehood. And certainly, even in the New Testament, these Christians that are coming out of um, pagan backgrounds, true idolatry would have been part of their life. And so little children, keep yourselves from idols. He's reminding them not to be drawn back into uh, their old way of life but to remain true to the Lord. Uh, but we also need to reflect on this and think about it. It's not just carved idols that he has in mind here. Um, I think it was John Calvin that said, our hearts are idol factories. Uh, it's not just that we don't want to just confine it to people in other cultures or other centuries that actually had that little statue on their shelf that they bowed down to worship. But in the context of the false prophets that they were facing, uh, one of the things they're dealing with is the idolatry of a false god or false conceptions of God. They know the true God and he is urging them to abstain from any form of worship, anything that draws them away from the true God and the true worship of Jesus Christ. So I have a few quotes to give you. <clears throat> uh, John Stott writes, The warning is no less appropriate to us today. Some contemporary manifestations of idolatry are almost as crude as the images of the first century. Mammon is still a powerful deity as people live for what they have or what they can acquire. <clears throat> In its more sophisticated forms, materialism becomes a quest for power, social status, success, fame. The world is full of self-made people who worship their creator. Now that might slip by you, did you get it? The world, world is full of self-made people who worship their creator <clears throat> themselves. Uh, and the church is not immune to the temptations. We need to guard ourselves against them. Anything that squeezes God out of the central position uh, towards the margin of, of our life must be ruthlessly toppled. Any notion of God which contradicts his perfect self-revelation in Jesus Christ must be rejected. 
<clears throat> and then a few comments from J.C. Ryle. He says, idolatry is a worship in which the honor due to God in Trinity and to him only is given to some of his creatures or to some invention of his creatures. And it may vary widely. It may assume different forms according to the ignorance or the knowledge, the civilization or the barbarism of those who offer it. It may be grossly absurd and ludicrous Or it may closely border on the truth and be capable of being defended in ways that appear most plausible. But however manifested, the principle of idolatry is in reality the same. In any case, the honor due to God is turned aside from him and bestowed on that which is not God. And whenever this is done, whether in heathen temples or in professedly Christian churches, There is an act of idolatry. It is not necessary for a man to formally deny God and Christ in order to be an idolater. Far from it. Profess reverence for the God of the Bible and actual idolatry are perfectly compatible. They have gone side by side and they still do so. And then uh, just a couple thoughts from Mark Deaver. He says, what he is saying is simple. Keep yourselves from a false and distorted Jesus. And you know you have a false and distorted Jesus in one of three ways. First, you might have the wrong doctrine. And here he's paralleling the three tests for authentic Christianity. First, you might have the wrong doctrine. You might conceive of Christ as an impersonal principle or spiritual force. Alternatively, you might think he was just a great human teacher. No, God became incarnate. Keep yourselves from such imposter Christs. Those are just idols to suit your desires. Second, you might think God is indifferent to sin, obedience. No, God incarnate died for our sins. He is deeply concerned for how we live. If you are worshiping a God who is indifferent to sin, You are not worshiping the true God. You are worshiping an idol of your own making. Third, you might think God is unconcerned with love. Get your doctrine right. Don't do anything immoral. Go to church. That's enough, right? No, the God incarnate died for our sins because of his love for us. And he leads his children to love one another with the same love. If you miss this, you have missed the real God and are worshiping some idol. So we need to be alert to our own idolatry. And I was referred to a section in this book by uh, David Wells, God in the Wasteland. And he asked one one paragraph that that to me really stood out because it's good for us to think about. He says, why do people choose the substitute over God himself? Probably the most important reason is that it obviates accountability to God. We can meet idols on our own terms because they are our own creations. They are safe, predictable, and controllable. They are, in Jeremiah's colorful language, the scarecrows in a cucumber field. They are portable and completely under the user's control. 
They offer, they offer nothing like the threat of a God who thunders from Sinai and whose providence in this world so often appears to us to be incomprehensible and dangerous. People who, and he's quoting another author, author, people who remain in the center of their lives and loyalties, autonomous architects of their own futures, but thereby avoid coming face to face with God and his truth. They need face only themselves. That is the appeal of idolatry. We don't want to be drawn away to false concepts of Christ or concepts of God, but deal with the true God in all the ways that he has revealed himself to us. And so this conclusion, these last two points is know God through his son, Jesus Christ, and worship God alone. So those two things, know God through his son, Jesus Christ, and worship God alone. And that's a a great way to bring this letter to a conclusion. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for your abundant love for us. Thank you for this letter and all that it's taught us and confronted us with. Help us to know you and especially fully through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we will worship you only and truly be um, put away any false ideas and worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May you, O Lord, be glorified in our lives in this way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.